morning. Happy New Year's to all of you folks out there. Glad you're here with us. Hey, uh, if you don't have your own Bible, why don't you grab one now? There should be plenty scattered in the pew backs in front of you. If you do have your own Bible, great. It's a good thing to bring it to church because uh, we're going to look at it every week. And so why don't you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to pick up here for a few weeks, uh, finishing off uh, Matthew chapter 13, where we left off, oh, about a month or so ago. We have been in the midst of uh, uh, the parables, Jesus' parables, eight parables, uh, the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And so we will pick up uh, there, starting in verse 31. Starting in verse 31, I trust that you're there close to it. Uh, We're going to pray, and uh, and then we're going to preach and receive God's word. And then we're going to share communion together as we remember and rejoice in what Christ has done for us. So would you pray with me uh, one more time, and then we'll dive in. Father, we ask now uh, the blessing upon the preaching and the teaching and the speaking, receiving, and living out of your word. We ask that you would be among us and that you would allow our hearts and minds to be willing to receive your word, to be willing to hear what you have to say to us, to be willing to be transformed by your grace and to be saved by your grace if we are not Christians this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, that I would be uh, clear and powerful and that your spirit would come upon me and that I would say that which is altogether true and helpful. And so we ask for your blessing and for your presence among us through your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' powerful name and all God's people said together. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you have Matthew 13, uh, starting in verse 31, I'd like to read the the passage that we're going to be covering this morning. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31, Jesus continued, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And that is a reading of God's holy word. Well, uh, big things, large things, influential things often have small beginnings. I'd like to show you a picture on the screen behind me. Take, for instance, uh, the Apple Corporation. You know that one, your iPhone, your iPad, your i, whatever else it is that you have, right? Pretty soon we're going to have iHomes and iCars and all that stuff, right? Take the Apple Corporation, for instance. Today, of course, it's one of the most valuable uh, brands and corporations in all of the world, worth roughly, are you ready, $1 trillion with a T Dollars. Now, I had to look up what $1 trillion looks like, because guess what? I don't have that in my bank account. And so $1 trillion is a one with 12 zeros behind it, okay? $1 trillion. 
So it obviously grew to be quite large, right? Quite profitable. However, um, you may or may not know that it had rather small beginnings. In fact, its first computers were were built right here in Steve uh, Jobs' small garage in Cupertino, California. And so big things can often have small beginnings. And so we are going to return to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, we have seen and will see eight parables. Eight parables, four parables are going to be public parables. That is, Jesus is going to just speak them to the crowds without explanation. Four of the eight parables are private parables where Jesus comes along and explains them both to his disciples and to us. Now, the two parables we're going to look at today are public parables, and they aren't necessarily divinely interpreted, so we are left to our spirit-given minds to interpret what Jesus means. Now, all eight parables are what Jesus calls the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And so the subject matter of all eight of the parables uh, are, is the kingdom of heaven, but particularly it's, it's the secrets or, or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. These parables are meant to give Jesus' uh, disciples new information, new revelation, if you will, about what I will call an interim phase, an interim phase of the kingdom of God, which we know of as the church. See, what was happening uh, leading up to and in the chapters before Matthew 13? Well, if you recall a few months ago, uh, we saw that the opposition to Jesus, in fact, the outright rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders had taken place. And so they were in the process, if not already, rejected Jesus as their king and their Messiah. And so in response to that, Jesus is going to teach us about a new, unexpected, hidden mystery phase of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It is called the church, Paul tells us. And so we get information about the kingdom of heaven in the church age in these parables. Now I want to show you right there on the screen a list of the parables, right? Uh, Four of them were given by the sea. Four of them were given in the house. In the parable of the soil, in the parable of the soil, we saw the proclamation of the kingdom. The proclamation of the kingdom. Remember that parable, right? There's a, there's a man and he sows seed, right? And he throws these seed and they, and they land in four different places. And so in that parable, we uh, got both the proclamation of the gospel and then four different responses to that gospel. Three of them were what? Were bad, right? They didn't bear fruit. One of them did, right? And so we see the proclamation of the kingdom in in the parable of the soil. Next, we saw in the parable of the tares, which is the second parable. And then we jumped ahead to the seventh parable, uh, because it's a sort of a parallel parable, the parable of the dragnet. In those two parables, we saw the destinations of the kingdom. Because Jesus wants to answer the question, well, we've seen three negative responses to the gospel. We saw one positive response to the gospel. What are the eternal implications of receiving Jesus and his gospel or rejecting Jesus and his gospel? And we saw in these two parables that all people will ultimately go to glory or to eternal punishment depending upon their response to the kingdom of God. 
Well, today we're going to take a look at parables 3 and 4. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast is what I will call it. The parable of leaven, if you will. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. In the parable of the mustard seed, we are going to see the expansion of the kingdom the outer expansion of the kingdom. In the parable of the yeast, we are going to see Jesus teach us about the transformation of the kingdom. That is, when we are involved in God's kingdom, we are transformed from the inside out. So the expansion of the kingdom and the transformation of the kingdom. Let's begin in verse 31 with the parable of the mustard seed as we take a look at the expansion of the kingdom, if you will, the external the visible growth of God's kingdom throughout the church age. So let's begin with the parable in verse 31. Let's look at it again. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in its field. So very similar to the previous parables that we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus introduces this parable with a simile, right? He likens the kingdom of heaven to a gardener, to a gardener who plants what type of seed? A a mustard seed, right? He says the kingdom of heaven is sort of like this. It's like a man who took took a, a mustard seed and he plants it in the field. And so the question then should be, well, how is the kingdom of heaven in particular How is the church like a man who planted a mustard seed in his garden? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 32 in the rest of the parable. He says, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And so here Jesus says the the kingdom the, the church, it's, it's, it's like a mustard seed. Now, what do we know about the mustard seed? Well, we know that the mustard seed was essentially the smallest of the seeds that a gardener was accustomed to sowing. And so you have the image of a gardener, and he's going to take the smallest seed that he's used to sowing, and he's going to plant that seed. But Jesus then contrasts the very small beginning, right, of that plant in the mustard seed with its full-grown, large implications. In the parable, right, this tiny mustard seed eventually is going to grow up to be the largest of all of the garden plants. In fact, we know historically speaking that uh, the mustard seed could grow in that context to 10 to 12 feet tall, right? Uh, Certainly large enough for birds of the air to nest in and find its perch on. And so what then is the point? What is the point of this rather short and fairly simple, I think, parable? Well, I think the point clearly seems to be the rather small beginning of the kingdom of heaven, which, when fully grown, would become what? It would become astoundingly large, right? And so we see here in this short parable the expansion of the kingdom. So let's think about how that in history has fleshed itself out. On the one hand, the parable I think certainly emphasizes and speaks to the church's very small, inconspicuous start, right? And and friends, small it was because Jesus began uh, his church with how many disciples? 
Twelve disciples, right? Twelve ragtag, nobody, uneducated disciples, right? Uh, Small indeed. And remember, I've mentioned it before, the context in which this parable is spoken. What were those disciples seeing? They were seeing the Jewish leaders blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They were seeing the Jewish leaders uh, uh, reject Jesus as their Messiah and essentially plan to murder him. And so what was uh, going on in their hearts and minds at, in that moment? Did, did they need to be encouraged? Did they need some perspective about what the kingdom of God through uh, them would ultimately become? Yeah, absolutely they did. And so Jesus provides that for them. And so, so the small beginnings, right? The church begins with just 12 men. But of course we know from the book of Acts and through church history that these 12 men through the power of the Holy Spirit bearing the gospel of Christ would eventually grow, right? It would grow, the church would grow into a large body of believers. Eventually it would become a worldwide Movement And friends, that is exactly what happened in the advancement of the gospel and the growth of the church. And so just for instance, remember with me into the book of Acts, right? Uh, the church began right before Pentecost and uh, Acts tells us that there were 120 people gathered. Remember that? And so the church had grown a bit. There were 12 apostles and, and then there were 120 people gathered and they were gathered there praying. That, that number quickly grew because there's a guy, remember his name? His name was Peter. And he gets up, and full of the Holy Spirit, he preaches the gospel, right? And you remember how many souls were added to the church that day? Anybody remember? 3,000, right? And so the church, uh, it grows, right, to 3,000. Well, historians tell us that by the year 60 A.D., about 30 years later or so, there were not 3,000 people in the church, but there were 6,000 people in the church. And so starting from that initial 6,000 people in the church, historians estimate that there were over 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire by the year 180 AD. In the year 200 AD, it had grown to 200,000. One million Christians approximately existed by 250 AD. By 380, just 50 years later, 5.9 million Christians worldwide. And by 350 AD, approximately 31 million Christians. And friends, if we were to jump to estimates today, you know roughly how many people claim to be followers of Christ today worldwide? 2.1 billion people claim to be followers of Jesus today. And so if you want to talk about a mustard seed, eventually it would become a large tree. But not only does this parable emphasize sort of the small beginnings of the church, but but certainly there is another aspect to it, right? It, It grew to be rather large. And not only did it grow to be large, but there is a positive effect, if you will. There is a positive influence that this church, this kingdom of God, this tree, if you will, has on the world. So think with me just for a moment back to the parable, right? Jesus says that though it was the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it becomes the largest of garden plants. And then Jesus adds these, uh, on the surface, seemingly insignificant words, but they're not insignificant words. They are uh, Old Testament images that are meant to give us a clue as to one implication of this parable. Jesus continues. He says, So that the birds come and perch on its branches. Why, why did Jesus share that information 
with us? Well, I, I think that Jesus, of course, knew his Old Testament pretty well. And so Jesus would have known that there are uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament that kingdoms often are portrayed as large, uh, glorious trees. Isn't that interesting? In fact, in Daniel chapter 4, we see uh, the kingdom of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the vision And his kingdom is portrayed as a large tree that grows and provides shade and nourishment and rest. And guess what happens? The birds of the air nest on that tree. In Ezekiel chapter 31, we see the uh, empire of the kingdom of Assyria. Very same image. And so so what Jesus is hinting at, I think what he's getting to, is that not only is the kingdom of God, uh, does it start small and, and grow to be large, but it will have a positive impact. It will have a positive effect to those that come underneath its branches, if you will. Now, certainly when we look at, at the church at large and, and in church history, this, this has become true. Not perfectly, right? You and I both know that Christians aren't always perfect, that the the church in various locations, there are skeletons, are there not? There are black eyes throughout church history, but certainly there have been many, many, numerous ways that the body of Christ has been a blessing to the world. I, I think back to an article, a Newsweek article that ran at the turn of the millennium. It was entitled, 2,000 Years of Jesus. It was quite interesting. 2,000 Years of Jesus, Holy Wars to Helping Hands, How Christianity Shaped the Modern World. And if you go and you read that article, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. But, but one of the things that the article acknowledges is, is this, and I quote, By any standard, secular standard, Jesus is the dominant figure of Western culture. The author writes, like the millennium itself, much of which we now think of, much of what we think now uh, in terms of Western ideas, inventions, and values, finds its source or inspiration in the religion that worships God in his name. They go on to say art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and family, right and wrong, body and soul, all have been touched and often radically transformed by the Christian influence. If you read the pages of church history, you see how this can be true. And so Jesus, in this third parable, speaks of uh, the parable of the mustard seed. It's the expansion of the kingdom. And certainly it had to do the hearts of his disciples both then and now good to know that the church age will grow. But there's a second parable I want us to examine this morning. And it starts in verse 33. It's the parable of the yeast, or the parable of the leaven. And in this parable, we see the transformation of the kingdom. Not only the expansion of it, but the transformation of the kingdom of God. See, the parable of the yeast, we'll read it in just a moment. It's, it's fairly similar uh, to the, the parable of the mustard seed. So, so in this parable, something that is small sort of grows to have... Uh, comes to have great influence. But certainly I think there are some some distinctions, and those distinctions I think are rather important. See, while the mustard seed emphasizes the numerical growth of the church, the parable of the yeast emphasizes the supernatural growth of the church. You could say it this way. You could say that the kingdom of God is not just about people in the pews, but it's about the purity of the people. It, it, the kingdom is not just about growing bigger, but it's about growing better. It's not just about quantity, but it's about what? It's about quality, right? The kingdom of God is not just about outer expansion, but it is about inner transformation. And so let's read this short parable together, starting in verse 33. 
Jesus continued. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, you may think, that's a lot of flour. At least that's what I thought when I first read it. 60 pounds. Wow. What are you making, right? Um, I I did my research, and uh, lo and behold, in in those days, uh, one commentator suggested that they they would often make uh, quite a bit of bread for a while. Well, it makes sense. That was sort of the main food staple. So don't get caught off off guard there. Uh, The point of the parable, I think, is is fairly, fairly straightforward. Here, the transformation of the church is likened to the way that yeast works, right? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like yeast. It's similar to what yeast does, right? In this parable, a person sticks yeast into a batch of dough or flour, and then what does that yeast inevitably do? It works all throughout the dough, right? And so here, the transformation of the church is likened to the way that yeast sort of works its way through flour until what? Until its influence and until its influence is sort of permeated throughout the entire lump. In other words, yeast has an inevitable and an extensive effect, despite being, well, small and rather insignificant, right? It transforms the entire lump of dough into something new. And so I, I did a little reading about how leaven works, about how yeast works. I don't work with dough a lot. I don't make bread. Uh, so I had to do a little research. How, what, what happens, right? The transformation uh, of the kingdom is, is, is likened to that. Well, I found out, call me a dummy that I didn't know, that yeast is actually a microscopic unicellular fungus. Did you know that? Well, I didn't know that, Jonas. But apparently it is. It is, a, it is a microscopic unicellular fungus. And so when you eat bread, guess what you're eating? Fungus. Man, who's hungry? I am. Simply put, what yeast does is it feeds off of sugars. It feeds off of carbs. And then when it eats it, it gives off a little, well, it gives off a little gas. Okay, that's what happens. It gives off a little gas. And within the dough, it creates a bubble, right? It, it becomes porous and that causes the bread to do what? To rise, right? It causes the bread to, to rise. So when you're having bread with your lunch today, just remember you're eating fungus gas, right? When, when you enjoy your, your, your lovely bread. The point is simply this, right? It transforms it. It is invasive, right? It takes what is there, and it, it's still dough, but it becomes something better, something different, something new. Friends, similarly, similarly, when we become Christians, when the gospel is placed within our hearts, when we repent of sin and self, and we trust in Jesus as our Savior, and we begin to follow him as our Lord by grace through faith, guess what happens? There is a, there's sort of a, a, a yeast, if you will. The Holy Spirit is placed inside of us. The gospel is placed inside of us. Paul says we become a new person. And that gospel influence penetrates all of who we are, right? It begins to affect and to transform us from the inside out. Friends, when you become a Christian, let me just ask you a question. When you become a Christian, does it change how you think? Yes or no? Yes. Does it change how you feel? Yes or no? Does it change your will? Yes or no? Does it change how you treat your body and what you do with your body? Yes or no? Yes, it should, right? It transforms not only every part of who we are, but the gospel pushes its way into every house, into every room of the house of our lives, right? In other words, there's not like a closet 
that it doesn't want to penetrate, right? There's not a basement that it doesn't want to transform, right? And so the gospel changes how we parent. The gospel wants to change our marriages. It wants to change how we work. It wants to change our purposes for living. It wants to change what comes out of our mouth and what we value, right? It transforms all of who we are. Like the yeast once started... This new gospel life, this eternal life that is planted inside of us, it will not stop until its job of transforming us is completed. I'm reminded of how Paul spoke of a very similar thing in Philippians chapter 1. I think you can see it on the screen behind me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. If not, there it is. Philippians 1. 1, 6? Okay. Different word. That's okay. Read, I'm going to read 1, 6. Philippians 1, 6. Paul writes this. He says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And so with these two parables in mind, right, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, I want us to look at some principles that we see from these parables. In fact, I've got three principles based on these parables and then that will prepare us to take in the Lord's Supper. The first principle is this, and it comes primarily from the parable of the mustard seed. Parable of the mustard seed. It goes this this way. This parable teaches us to trust God to grow his kingdom, that we should trust in God to grow his kingdom through his church, right? The parable of the mustard seed had to be great encouragement for Jesus' disciples, despite whatever hostility that they or Jesus was facing. In fact, I think John MacArthur, the uh, pastor and commentator, picks up on this when he writes this. He says, Jesus' purpose in these two parables was to assure the apostles, the early church, and every believer in every age that ultimately his kingdom not only would not fail, but would prosper and grow. Christianity will win. Evil will be destroyed. And Jesus will reign. Friends, when we too face opposition, when we face hardship, and the kingdom uh, is, 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 in, is in conflict, if you will, just as the original disciples of Jesus did, we too can have confidence that Jesus is going to begin that work and he's going to finish it, that the church will grow. I can't help but remember Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus tells them, and I tell you, speaking to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I, what does he say? Might? Did he say, I, I might? What does he say? Say it with me. That I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm reminded of the truth here, that there is inherent power in the gospel, the shared gospel. We see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where, where Paul writes this. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why are you not ashamed to share the gospel? Well, he tells us. Because, because in the gospel, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then, then to the Gentile. There is this power internal to the Christian message when it is preached and proclaimed, and when that message is met with faith, that there is new life and growth, both individually and corporately. So, friends, we should trust that God will grow his kingdom. But not only that... But the parable of the, must, of, the, of the yeast teaches us that we can also trust God to transform his people. That we can also trust God to transform his people. That is, that genuine Christians will be changing Christians. That genuine Christians will be growing Christians. That genuine Christians will be maturing 
Christians. Now, certainly this takes our cooperation, right? If we want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, it it doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't happen magically, right? It's not as if uh, God just zaps us uh, one day and then automatically we are holy. I sort of wish it would happen that way. It'd be much easier. Uh, There is no easy button. You may remember a series of commercials from uh, Staples. It's been about a decade ago. They did these series uh, where they talked about how there's no easy button in life. Maybe you remember that. And so the, the commercials would go like, uh, there's some difficult circumstance, right? There's a, there's a surgeon and there's some, uh, this, uh, this person is in dire need. And he says, he looks and there's an easy button, right? And he hits the easy button. And there's a, a, a new dad and there's a, a baby who, who's he's trying to change the diaper. And he looks and there's the easy button. So he hits the easy button, right? And then the, the commercial ends by saying something like, wouldn't it be nice if there was an easy button for life? Um, friends, there is no easy button for holiness, right? It, it doesn't happen that way. In fact, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, that we are to work out, not work for our salvation by pursuing obedience. But then he follows that up by saying this. He says, yes, work out your salvation, pursue obedience, But when we do so, God is actually giving us both the desire to do so and the power to do so. There is our verse in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, Paul writes, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, how are we supposed to do that? Why are we supposed to do that? Verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you to will that is to give you the desire to obey, and to act. In other words, he gives you the uh, uh, power to, to obey in order to fulfill his good purposes. So friends, the question then becomes, how, how is it, if, if the parable of, of the yeast is about the transformation of God's people, how does that happen? How does God transform his people? If it's not easy, if it's something that we have to cooperate with God with, well, what what does that look like? How does God do that? Well, I would submit to you that it's sort of a recipe, to use a cooking illustration, that it's sort of, of, of a recipe with many ingredients. In other words, if we had a, a recipe for ways to become holy from the scriptures, I think there would be more than three ingredients, right? There's a, there's a bunch of ingredients. Uh, it's the kind of recipe that, generally speaking, my wife shies away from, right? If it's five or more, you don't want to do that, right? It's, it's pretty complicated. The, the recipe for holiness is complicated. There's lots of ingredients. However, if you read through the scriptures, I think you'll find that one ingredient that finds its way into the Bible many times over is a regular time meditating and thinking about and applying the Word of God. In other words, the transformation of the people of God is often tied to the Word of God. And so 1 Peter 2, 2 gives us this wonderful image He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. Why? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. In other words, just like babies long for their mother's milk, so God has put a longing, a hunger for spiritual milk, the word of God, in the spiritual appetites of his newborn children. And when we regularly drink from that well, what will happen? We will grow. There will be transformation. Now, there are other things involved, for sure. But as we enter this new year, 
Uh, it is a wonderful time for us to think about Bible reading plans. If it's not something that you do regularly, I encourage you, Google Bible reading plan, and you will find a plethora of options. One year, two year, three years, all sorts of ways to do it. It's as easy as ever before. Friends, uh, feed yourself on the newborn milk of the Word of God. Well, we can trust God to grow his kingdom and to transform his people. And third, we can trust God to bless the world through us, to bless the world through us. See, both parables, I think, in different ways, emphasize the blessing that the people of God should be on the world. The mustard seed grows to be a tree. We've talked about that already. In in the parable of the yeast, right, the yeast has a positive influence on the bread. It causes it to rise. It gives it flavor, right? Who among you would choose a flat cracker over uh, freshly baked bread? Who would you? Dare you raise your hand? No, don't. Maybe you could, and that's your, that's your, that's your uh, prerogative. But, but listen, right? There's a positive influence here uh, that yeast has on bread. Very similarly, the church corporately and Christians individually, friends, we are to be a blessing to those that we come in contact with. We see it throughout the scriptures, but one place comes to mind, and it's in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul writes, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently for what reason? So that those who have believed God, friends, if you're a Christian, is that you? Yes, it is. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Why? Paul says these things are good and profitable for men. In other words, when Christians are salt and light, when we engage in good deeds, that we will be a blessing to the world around us. On the, on the power of our conduct and the power of our speech, I'm reminded of the Christian author Sheldon Van Auken, and he's, he writes these words. It's powerful words. He says, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But then he goes on to say, but the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive, then he writes, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. So friends, the, the kingdom of God in the church age is to be a blessing. We are to be a blessing to those that we come in contact with. And so we've seen parables three and four, right? Parable of the mustard seed, parable of the yeast, the, 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 the expansion of the kingdom and the transformation of the kingdom. Well, I'd like to close by doing this to prepare us for communion. I want us to begin this new year, right? We're in 2019. We're grateful for the new year. I want us to begin looking forward in the new year by looking back, by looking back all the way back to the cross, because how did the kingdom of God, how did the the church of Christ ultimately come about? Well, it was through the cross, and we remember that as we share communion, right? We remember that Christ's body was, was broken, and that his blood was shed for us. As we continue in Matthew's gospel, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna come to see as in the later uh, periods of Matthew's gospel that the kingdom would only come through a cross. That the kingdom would only come about through a cross. See, usually kingdoms come about through what? They come about through conquering. Well, in a similar way, Jesus' kingdom, this age of the church, it, it does come about through conquering, but, but in a very different fashion, right? Jesus brought about his kingdom by conquering our greatest enemies, sin and Satan and death.
And so I want us to begin this new year by remembering what Christ has done for us in communion. And so I'm going to spend a, a moment uh, praying for us. I'm going to give you a time to prepare yourself to come to the table, a time to remember, a time to thank God for what he's done, a time to repent if there are sins that need to be repented of, uh, a time to reflect and to focus. And then when you are prepared, uh, I invite you, if you are a Christian today, if you have trusted in Christ, if you are born again, then come to the table. And if you know, friends, that you have not done that, then we invite you to refrain from the table in honor of what this means for us as a community. And so I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you for a time of of silence and prayer. And when you're uh, prepared to come to the table, then you come. Would you pray with me now? Father, what a privilege it is for us to, to remember what you've done. Lord, we anticipate this year. We're grateful for the last one, for the blessings, and for the hard times, for you use them to transform us. And we anticipate what you're going to do in this church and in our lives and in this community and in this country in this new year. And yet we uh, cannot forget to look backwards. Lord, we must be reminded times and times again of your, um, your son's death for us. Jesus, we are so grateful that you um, in humility came and that you in obedience to your father uh, were obedient uh, even to death, even to a vicious, cruel death on a cross. And we were reminded that your body was was broken for us and that your blood was shed for us to purchase forgiveness of sins and so much more. We are grateful for this. Father, now prepare us as we prepare to come to your table. In Jesus' name.